You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You look in the mirror and you see a talented architect who is politically active and loves classical music. A stranger sees you and thinks, black female. We categorize each other in an instant, despite the fact that race, for example, has little scientific basis. Coming up, the science of black and white, male and female, and our evolutionary need to check a box. Plus, erasing the dividing line between species as a team of lawyers argue for the legal rights of chimpanzees. It's What's the Difference on Big Picture Science. I have a system for putting away dishes in my kitchen. Uh, We have a stack of brightly colored plates, but the plates that are faded, they go on the bottom. And then the more colorful ones, like these, these go on top here. Okay, we also have glasses for orange juice here, uh, but then drinking glasses go next to them, but not with the orange juice glasses because they're slightly bigger and um, they're for a different purpose. Okay, you probably think I'm making this up, but this really is me in my kitchen putting away my dishes according to my plan, which works very well. Here's my husband. Hi. Hi. Now, I wonder if you could just put those teaspoons away. Where do they go? I think they go into this little slot in the silverware drawer for the small spoons. Well, yes and no, because you'll notice that one of these teaspoons has a square end, you see, and the other one has a sort of design imprint on the end. Oh, yeah, sure. But they're the same size. Right, but they're different, okay? So these ones with the design go there. Okay. Okay, and then these with the square, they go into the slot, just sort of right adjacent to it like that. Oh, okay. Did you notice the difference on those two spoons? Uh, well, I hadn't ever really thought about it. They're pretty different. They're both teaspoons, and they go in their separate slots there. Oh, my God. Okay, well, that's a revelation. And those forks... Okay, those forks are slipping out of their slot. All the silverware is put away. We are totally organized. Good work, Molly. (laughs) Well, we have all sorts of tricks to keep ourselves organized. This goes here, that goes there. It all helps us to make sense of things, even if it's only a minor difference that distinguishes Group A from Group B. There may be consequences. I mean, if you misfile the silverware, you might be using the teaspoon with a square end instead of with a fleur-de-lis for tea. And maybe your guests will put you down for a bounder. We are pattern-seeking animals, and grouping things often determines how we think about them, how we value them. Sometimes these differences are trivial, but they can be dramatic and important. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this hour, the scientific basis for the broad categories we use with each other, male or female, black or white, they can become shorthand for us versus them. But what if the line that separates categories is based on only a single or perhaps a very small number of specific differences? Of the tens of thousands of genes in our genome, for example, no more than a half dozen determine skin color. We'll hear about the biological basis for race, the genes that determine sex, and why we need to draw lines in the first place. Also, if our primate cousins are nearly identical to us genetically, well, should they have legal rights too? The chimpanzee gets his day in court. It's what's the difference? From the day we're born, we are categorized into groups. Look, what an ugly baby. 
Not all babies are cute, you know. I know. You, Jonathan, you're on the tetherball team. You too, Hank. Pick me, coach. Pick me. Miles, uh, you'll be sitting this one out. I mean, for the season. And the winner of this year's Nobel Prize for Physics is Herman T. von Whittlesnap. In accepting this award, only my humility runs as... Von Whittlesnap? Are you kidding me? He's no physicist. That Nobel should have been mine. Now I'll never get that premier parking spot on campus. Yes, life slaps us down into categories with all the warmth and compassion of a Las Vegas blackjack dealer. And we've got about as much control over the hand we're dealt, being beautiful or not, an athlete or not, Nobel Prize winning physicist or not. I, for one, have yet to give up on that last one. But perhaps the distinguishing category that determines your life's trajectory was dealt nine months before you were born. It's determined at the moment of fertilization when the sperm meets the egg. In other words, whether or not you'd have a Y chromosome. Males have an X and Y chromosome. Females have two X chromosomes. Two X chromosomes and you're female. Substitute a Y for an X and you're male. The egg your mom gave you carried an X chromosome. Your dad's sperm offered either an X or a Y. So in some sense, it was that flip of the dice at the moment of fertilization. Was your mom's egg fertilized from dad an X-bearing sperm or a Y-bearing sperm? And voila, you're relegated to either wearing oversized sports jerseys and belching the alphabet. Or to spending every month's salary on shoes that are too tight while you never learned a parallel park. That's not easy in those shoes. Okay, gender stereotypes start early. But here's the thing. All those different behavioral traits come from one snippet of your DNA, says biologist and geneticist David Page of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His team sequenced that male Y chromosome, one out of 23 packets of the genetic stuff we call DNA. DNA is the chemical substance of which our genes and chromosomes are made. A string of genes makes up a chromosome. In each of our cells, we carry 23 pairs of chromosomes. And if we're thinking about males and females, it turns out that 22 of those 23 pairs, or 45 of the 46 chromosomes, are absolutely identical. So out of our 46 chromosomes in both males and females, it's just a question of, is the 46th chromosome an X, in which case you're a female, or is that 46th chromosome a Y, in which case you're a male? So it's only the last couple of percent of the blueprint that determine whether you're going to be a guy or a gal. Absolutely. If you were to look at that, uh, that Y chromosome and say, no, you know, it's, it's got all these genes in there, which are little instruction sets for building the kind of organism we're going to get. I mean, what, what are the kinds of differences that a male would have vis-a-vis -a, -vis a female? I mean, what, what sort of coding are they doing other than, you know, maybe more body hair or something? <laughs> Great question. What's on the Y chromosome? Well, it turns out that we've only come to understand in the last 10 or 15 years much of anything, actually, about the gene content of the Y chromosome and what makes, what is it about those genes that have something to do with becoming a male? Well, it turns out there is a single gene on the Y chromosome. It's a gene called SRY that, in a sense, instructs the developing fetus to develop testes and become an anatomic male. So in the presence of that one gene on the Y chromosome, the fetus will acquire male anatomic characteristics. In the absence of that gene in the Y chromosome, the fetus will develop female anatomic characteristics. In addition to that sex-determining gene, it turns out there are a large number of genes on the Y chromosome that come into play only much later, actually primarily in the adult male, where many of these genes are actually required for sperm production. So it turns out that one gene plays a big role in determining whether the fetus turns into, at birth, a male or a female. But many of the other genes on the Y chromosome have much, much more to do with subsequently becoming a biological father. Well, that's really quite interesting because what you're saying is, is that that first, if, if you will, switch point there is dependent on, on only one gene 
I, I guess if it were dependent on hundreds of genes, you know, you might get sort of a semi-male or something like that. Maybe it has to be just one gene. Well, it's a great question. It's, you know, and actually, if we go farther back, if we think back in an evolutionary context, <laughs> it turns out that our ancestors 200 or 300 million years ago, when we were reptiles, probably didn't rely even upon a single sex-determining gene in the sense that we now know this sex-determining gene on the human Y chromosome today. It turns out that in turtles, in crocodiles, alligators, for instance, whether the developing embryo becomes a male or a female is determined by the temperature at which the egg incubates. So in some sense, whether our ancestors became male or female was determined in software. It was determined by an environmental cue. Then during the course of evolution, we moved the controls of that process into hardware. Our ancestors evolved a gene on the Y chromosome that became a, a sort of switch by its presence or absence. I assume that once we became warm-blooded, having your sex determined by the temperature wasn't such a good way to go because presumably the temperatures were always the same. Great insight. Yeah. So perhaps moving sex determination into hardware, into sex chromosomal hardware, was necessarily accompanied or uh, moving the development of the fetus into the body uh, as opposed to being in, a, in an egg laid outside. And, uh, you know, there may have been other, other factors at work. Imagine if you had temperature-dependent sex determination. Well, as uh, the weather changed or climate changed, you might have dramatic changes in the, in the ratios of males and females. And some have even speculated that um, perhaps the dinosaurs had problems because they had temperature-dependent sex determination and some dramatic climactic changes like volcanic eruptions spewing ash into the atmosphere might have uh, led to their extinction because they became a unisex species for a short period of time, and that doesn't last very long. But there have been reports that the Y chromosome, for example, was going extinct because it was decaying genetically. Could you help us make some sense out of that claim? It's a claim that I have uh, lots of fun talking about. To be honest, I've spent the better part of my career defending the honor of the Y chromosome and of males in the face of innumerable insults to the Y chromosome's character and, and future prospects. It turns out that we know that the X and the Y chromosomes were some hundreds of millions of years ago absolutely identical in their composition, in their gene composition. And over the course of evolutionary time, the X chromosome hung on to almost all of the genes that it once shared with the Y chromosome, while the Y chromosome withered away, retaining a tiny fraction of the genes once shared with the X. So about 10, 15 years ago, some of my scientific colleagues extrapolated from this and said, oh, it's just a matter of time, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years, at most a few millions of years before the Y chromosome will disappear. Well, this made for interesting stand-up comedy, but it was never, there was never a solid scientific foundation to this claim. And in recent years, we've had the opportunity by comparing, for instance, the human Y with the Y chromosomes of some of our primate relatives and show that the Y chromosome looks, though it has a relatively modest stable of genes at present, it looks like it's been doing a pretty good job over the last 50, 100 million years of hanging on to those genes. So I don't think there's much risk of the Y chromosome going away anytime soon. I don't think there's much risk of males going away anytime soon. <laughs> All right. I feel reassured, I have to say. Well, then, finally, David... Undoubtedly, it strikes you how powerful the role of uh, randomness plays in genetics and, uh, and the consequences of what follows. You know, a, a small number of genes determine the trajectory in a large measure of a person's life. Any thoughts on that that you might have? Well, it's an incredibly important question that you ask. As we've said, each of us arises from an X-bearing egg that is fertilized by either an X-bearing or a Y-bearing sperm. And that, of course, determines whether we develop as a male or a female. And that, of course, plays an enormous role in our sense of identity. And I think by the time that each of us is three or four years old, 
based on my own observations of my own children, all of whom are daughters. I think we become fairly obsessed with identifying ourselves and others in the world as males or females, and the whole of human existence is shaped to a very large degree by the existence of these two sexes. And so, yes, I think that this incredibly significant coin toss has such enormous implications for each of us that I feel incredibly privileged to have been able to spend my days <laughs> and nights figuring out how this whole thing works. David Page, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. Thank you. David Page is a biologist and geneticist at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Okay, so your whole wardrobe, not to mention your dating behavior, comes down to which chromosome your dad gave you. And he didn't make that choice either. Coming up, for some, checking a box male or female is an easy task, although it's complicated for those who feel they don't fit into traditional gender roles. But how about when you come across this list? Choose one that applies. White, Black, African American, American Indian, Alaska Native. This biologist wants to do away with them all. I think that it makes a lot of sense to get rid of the categories on the census form. I think they are a cultural holdover from 19th century racist thinking. How 21st century thinking has changed our concept of racial categories next. It's What's the Difference on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about the origins and the scientific bases of some of the boxes that we put each other in and how the degrees of separation between categories are often incredibly few. We just heard that only one chromosome separates males from females and maybe only one gene on that chromosome, if you're totally into being a reductionist. Later in the show, the thin line between closely related species and whether a chimpanzee should have legal personhood. But first, another way that we group each other, one of the most divisive. Twenty years ago, political scientist Andrew Hacker's book about American race relations, Two Nations, Black and White, separate, hostile, unequal, addressed the persistent racial inequality in this country. The book was striking not only for its grim assessment of our lack of progress, but also for its title's stark bifurcation of our racial divide, black and white. A very different picture was offered by a photo essay in National Geographic magazine in October 2013. It included the faces of more than two dozen mixed-race Americans. Now, their physiognomy was a combination of features from parents who were African-American, German, Chinese, East Indian, Jewish, Korean, and the list goes on and on. The essay's subtitle, We've Become a Country Where Race is No Longer Black or White. But then Stephen Stearns might say we never were. From the point of view of genetics, racial categories are nearly non-existent. The Yale University biologist specializes in evolution and is a founding editor of the Journal of Evolutionary Biology. And he says that if you're looking at the tens of thousands of genes that code for everything that makes us human, the concept of race doesn't mean much. Well, it depends on whether you're talking about uh, biology or culture. Uh, to an evolutionary geneticist, race doesn't have very much meaning. It doesn't explain very much of the variation we see in humans. 
but we also know about culture, and we know that race is a cultural concept. So the racial categories that we use to describe groups, you know, those boxes on the census form that we check out, black, Hispanic, Pacific Islander, Caucasian, do, do they have any anthropological or biological basis? Well, they have very little. Uh, we can estimate that fairly precisely. I'd like to frame that by saying that our genome is about 3 billion nucleotides long, and that means that the following two statements are both true. I am 99.9% .9 similar to you, but I can still be different from you at 3 million different places in that alphabet. So let's frame it with that. In other words, we have to get our heads around those big numbers, a genome that's over 3 billion bases long, and the fact that even if I'm only 0.1% different from you, that means I could still differ from you at 1 million different places. All right, but uh, those one million places must encode things like uh, the shape of the face, the color of the skin, the kind of features that uh, we take as indicators of racial categories. What accounts for a Southeast Asian facial trait being distinct from an African one, for example? Well, we actually don't know very much about things like the shape of the nose or the shape of the lips or something like that. We do know something about skin color. And for skin color, the answer is it's a very small number of genes. It's on the order of four to six genes that determine skin color. So that is a very tiny portion of our genome. If we go from the nucleotide level to the gene level, and a gene is many nucleotides, we have about, say, 20 or 30,000 genes in our genome, and only four to six of them are determining differences in skin color. It appears to be a trait that uh, has fairly simple genetic determination and that evolved pretty recently. Well, it's kind of ironic then that the color of skin was proposed, and I believe this was in the 19th century, as this big categorization of uh, Homo sapiens, red, yellow, brown, black, white, and skin, of course, isn't really any of these used. So this early categorization was misleading right from the get-go. That's correct. And, of course, we can't blame the 19th century scientists too much because they didn't have modern genetic tools and they didn't know about DNA and things like that. But modern advances in science have shown that skin color is a superficial trait and it has evolved fairly recently and it doesn't really help to associate with other features. For example, I don't believe skin color has any association with intelligence or entrepreneurship or anything like that. It was evolved in response to, I assume, environmental conditions. I mean, why is it that we have different colors of skin? Well, that's interesting. If we go back to the chimpanzees, if you were to take a chimpanzee and uh, anesthetize it and shave all of its hair off, you would notice that it had fairly light skin color. Our skin color then got dark when we lost that hair, and it probably lost that hair because we went through a period when we were doing long-distance running to chase down game, and we had to be able to sweat efficiently. But that exposed light skin to burning sunlight, and we then developed dark skin color to protect ourselves from skin cancer. But yet it must be admitted the consequences can be dramatic of just having a few genes, and you've already noted it's only a few genes, that confer the color of your skin or, or a wide nose or whatever it is that puts you in a distinct racial category. Those little, little chemical coders, those little chemical packets can determine how you're treated in life, what social group you align with, whether you'll be discriminated against, all those things. I think it's fascinating. I think what's going on here, though, has a lot more to do with our behavior and our culture than it does with our genetics. For example, let's suppose that a person had one white parent and one black parent. And in fact, I have a grandson who has one white parent and one black parent. And how do we think about that person, my grandson in this case? Is he black or is he white? Well, the answer is he's equally black and equally white. He's 50-50 that demonstrates a number of very interesting things. One is that these categories that we use, that we tend to fit people into, are very poor descriptors of what they're like. The other thing is a biologist, an evolutionary biologist, I'm just fascinated by the fact that my son and my daughter-in-law could have a beautiful, charming, healthy, and mischievous child using genes that hadn't interacted with each other for more than 100,000 years. I think it says something deep about the commonality of humanity that we produce such wonderful grandchildren. 
National Geographic recently featured an article about the changing face of race in America. It was accompanied by a photo essay of mixed race American faces. Certainly, it's long past being a country of black and white. So when somebody says, well, that person is of mixed race or that's on a form somewhere, you know, could a biologist tell that somehow by uh, using you know, lab equipment or something? Sure. What we can do is we can sequence their genomes and then... If we have a large enough sample of different kinds of people who are from different parts of the world, we can say, oh, we tend to find these sorts of genetic variants in people who come from East Africa and these sorts of genetic variants in people who come from China. And then we can look at a person, uh, say, someone who was living in Chicago who has some parents, you know, some ancestors from Africa and some ancestors from China, and we can use that information to estimate how much of their genome comes from each location. Now, that is not to admit the reality of this concept called race. It is simply to say that we have a genetic method of tracing the percentage of a person's genome that comes from people of different geographic origins. So, Steve, what do you expect humans of the future are going to look like? If you look down the road, I don't know, 100 years, maybe 1,000 years, I believe you think that we will eventually homogenize. Uh, is, is that what you see coming? Well, I've been interviewed on that point a number of times. It's kind of amusing. I said, you know, I think in the future we're all going to look like Brazilians. And I got a call from a Brazilian journalist in Sao Paulo saying, I'm looking out the window and uh, gosh, they all look kind of different from each other. And what happens over the course of about oh, 10 to 100 generations is that these genetic differences tend to get blended together and you tend to get stabilized on kind of an intermediate sort of phenotype. And so my, my vision was actually that in the long term, we'll probably all turn out to, to have descendants that are probably light brown and probably genetically somewhat more healthy than we are. But it won't be 100 years. I think that if you uh, gave me a time horizon of perhaps 10,000 years, that might be more likely. But I think the blending process will continue, and I think that eventually racial categories will disappear. Steve Stearns, thank you so very much for being with us. You're very welcome. Stephen Stearns is an evolutionary biologist at Yale University. Okay, so we're moving toward being more homogeneous. Well, that should heal our divisions, right? If, in fact, we homogenize ourselves racially and ethnically, then the categories of ethnicity and race will become less functional to us, and we won't categorize on that basis. But we will categorize on some other basis, and it may be national identity, it may be gender identity, it may be any other identity. So we'll always have to be on guard in terms of fighting against prejudice and unfair treatment of people based on their group membership. Here's the bottom line. We are evolutionarily wired to create tribal identities, if not by color of skin, then color of hair, or ability to win at video games. And despite the pain and divisiveness that some of these distinctions have caused over the millennia, the us-versus-them mentality has served as a means of self-protection. So our categorizing ways may be a real challenge to shake, says social psychologist John DeVidio. If you think about the way humans evolved... There's two ways we evolved. One was by forming groups that were fundamentally social animals, and the second reason that we evolved was because we developed an intellect that allows us to understand and at least feel that we understand our environment. Social categorization promotes both of those processes and those things. So you're kind of saying that us and them as concepts, well, that, that mentality is kind of built in. It is built in, at least the capacity to be able to group things and see members of being my group that are important to me versus members of other group seems to have a real evolutionary basis and genetic basis. Okay, well, would that basis be just as simple as, I don't know, just simple Darwinian competition? I mean, by categorizing people, we somehow increase the survival chances of our near relatives? Uh, definitely, because in a way... Once I categorize people as a member of my group, I know who I can trust. I know who will reciprocate assistance. I know who I can count on, and I know who I can cooperate with for our common good. Maybe you could give us some examples. Sure. The research shows that we are much more concerned about being fair with members of our group than members of other groups, because it's important that we have a good relationship where we have a give and take. 
because that benefits us personally, but also benefits our survival as a group. People have to make these decisions about who's in our group very, very quickly, and we rely visually on cues to tell us who's like us and who's not like us. And this happens unconsciously, it happens automatically, it happens universally. Well, at what age do we begin to notice this? At what age do children begin to see others as different, you know, noticing their otherness, whether it's the color of their skin, how they dress, or, or maybe how they speak? Right. There's a considerable amount of work that, first of all, children began to notice this while they're still infants. And by the age of three, that they're discriminating between groups based on their accents and the language that they speak. But noticing difference doesn't automatically mean discrimination all the time in terms of negative treatment. It means young children really have to be attuned to understand who's part of their group and who's not part of their group. And then the actual behavioral discrimination begins around age three and really crystallizes more like age five, six, seven, and gets particularly strong as children move into adolescence. Well, I think that many people will be uh, listening to this and thinking of it in terms of our categorization of uh, what have long been called races, whatever that term they mean. And so this sounds like there's actually an evolutionary basis, a psychological basis, for racial bias. I would disagree racial bias, but what we're pre-programmed to do is to make judgments about people as being like us or not like us, about whether people are friends or foes. And then society will tell us what kind of groups to fill into those different categories. Researchers have argued that race is not pre-programmed genetically. What they've argued is that recognizing people by gender is something that's pre-programmed because that is so essential to our survival. But what they've argued is that in our evolutionary history, we didn't travel very far, and therefore we didn't come in much contact with people of other races. And therefore, race can't be genetically pre-programmed. And it's our society that tells us that we should be judging people by one drop of black blood or other ways of looking at them. Okay, so we're not necessarily pre-programmed to have racial bias. We we have bias in other senses, but not, not one that says, look, just because you're from that continent over there or that part of the country over here, you know, I'm going to think less of you. That isn't something that uh, that we have to have. Right. I mean, when I give talks in Europe very often, what I've learned is to stop talking about race as an American because Europeans don't understand American history and why one drop of black blood would define somebody's entire life. They also understand that in their societies, they categorize many different groups and that they have prejudices based on these social categories. They just happen to choose other categories than what we choose. From a genetic point of view, of course, humans are at least 99.8% the same, identical in terms of their DNA. So the differences are really, really small, and yet it's the differences that we see. Right. But, you know, when you talk about the differences that we see, it's really interesting because people tend to believe that they can judge what group a person belongs to by their facial characteristics much better than they actually can. And so they'll be quick to say that they can see that this person may be gay or this person may have some black blood or this person may be Muslim, more so than they actually can do it accurately. But that makes sense. If we need to understand who's a friend and who's a foe, it's better to jump to a conclusion from an evolutionary point of view that somebody may be a foe because you really don't want to make a mistake. If you make the mistake of thinking that a foe is a friend, you can only make that mistake once sometimes. And so people become very attuned to the differences and become very wary and mistrusting of those people who are different. It just sounds like a processing shortcut to me. I mean, you know, we don't know whether this person or that person is helpful or hurtful, but if we categorize all people with, I don't know, long hair, thin noses, dark skin, or anything else as weird or something like that, then we can quickly deal with their possible effect on us. And so, you know, this was just uh, something to save time and maybe save your life. And that's kind of the normality of prejudice that you've just talked about. Even when I'm teaching, I describe that the whole process of education is to train students to take a bunch of isolated incidents and somehow organize them into some coherent rule or category or strategy. That's the same process that actually underlies intergroup bias and prejudice and stereotyping. 
Well, some are going to say, viva la différence, but on the other hand, there are certainly some pretty hefty negative consequences to judging people as groups rather than individuals. It's an issue, of course, we've been trying to fix for a long time. How can we best deal with this problem? Even though we see people on the basis of race, in the United States, we see people automatically in three categories. Most Americans see people in terms of the category of gender, man or woman, in terms of the category of race, particularly white or black, and the category of age, old or young. Now, we can see people in terms of that category, but we can also think about people in terms of a different category. So we can think about a black person not as a black person, but as a member of my community, as a member of my high school, as a member of my college. And in that way, we're going to move them from being an out-group member to an in-group member. John DeVidio, thank you so very much for being with us today. Well, thank you. John DeVidio is a social psychologist at Yale University. So it sounds as though even if we could look beyond color of skin and ethnicity and religion and age and all of that, we'd find some other way to group us into us versus them. Those who are wearing short sleeve shirts of a turquoise color, those who are wearing longer shirts with a floral pattern. I'm glad you noticed my shirt. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we're battling our own inheritance here. I mean, uh, on the one hand, there are all sorts of problems when you categorize people, obviously. If you don't do that, you don't have a shortcut that has been useful in the past for our survival. All right. Well, we have a deeply rooted tendency to draw lines between groups, even if there is little biological basis for them, such as the case of race. But what about the line that divides species? A lawyer and his team enter new legal territory when they argue in court for the rights of chimpanzees. Should our close primate relatives be granted personhood? That's next. It's What's the Difference on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The setting for this next discussion is a courtroom, but en route, let's swing by a biology classroom. It's there that we learn that the DNA of humans and chimpanzees, and bonobos, by the way, is 98% identical. The vast majority of the genes are the same. Chimpanzees are our closest living relatives, and yet we are distinct species. Okay, well, we look different. I mean, chimpanzees are hairy, and, well, actually, so are we, but in different places. The chimps are shorter, they have longer arms, and they knuckle walk on all fours, except when they're carrying things, and then they walk upright, kind of like us. So differences in morphology make up some of that 2% difference. But there's more. You can't give a chimpanzee a physics problem and expect them to solve it, or hand them a soldering iron to build a radio. I mean, you can, you can hand him the soldering iron, but he isn't going to build the radio. And they don't write romantic poetry in iambic pentameter. Frankly, I've yet to read a chimp autobiography that didn't have a ghostwriter. But chimpanzees can solve problems. They create and use certain kinds of tools. They have rich emotional lives. Primatologist Jane Goodall has observed that they feel love for each other and will kiss and hug to console one another in acts of empathy. And while chimps don't have an alphabet, they understand aspects of human language. Chimpanzees will ask about the well-being of their trainers using sign language. In other words, according to scientists, chimps and us... We're not that different. Of course, we are people and chimps are not. But could chimps be persons under the law? Scientists have for some time now been calling for a broader definition of legal personhood that would include chimpanzees and bonobos. Now that fight is in the courts. The chimps, in other words, are lawyered up. Their legal team hails from the Non-Human Rights Project in New York, which claims to be the only organization working for the legal rights of species other than our own. Headed by Stephen Wise, it argues that chimpanzees and other great apes are cognitively sophisticated, self-aware, and autonomous, and should be able to determine how to live their lives. 
The court case is a monkey trial for the 21st century, and in its effort to grant legal rights to our primate cousins to give them personhood is potentially just as groundbreaking. Next on the docket... Homo sapiens versus pan troglodytes. The lower courts have heard arguments and the case is now with the New York Supreme Court. Lawyers from the Non-Human Rights Project are asking that four captive chimpanzees, all located in the state of New York, be granted bodily liberty. In other words, they are being held against their will and should be freed. Steve Wise met one of the captive chimps, Tommy, who lives in a dark cage in a used trailer lot on his owner's property. Tommy is a chimpanzee who I saw one time, and he was by himself, and uh, the only stimulation I could see was uh, about 15 feet away, there was a small portable television that was showing uh, PBS. So so the conditions were quite grim for Tommy. Well, I, I don't think they were appropriate in many ways for a chimpanzee. According even to the um, NIH standards that were promulgated in June of 2013, uh, they say if you're going to keep chimpanzees, and there are very few of them that are allowed now to be used for biomedical research by the federal government, they cannot be kept in groups fewer than seven. There have to be mixed females and, and, and males. They have to have uh, at least 20 feet of vertical climbing, and they have to be kept in a way that that allows them to use their abilities for choice and self-determination. So I I did not see any of those. Keeping a chimpanzee by himself in solitary confinement um, is as terrible for a chimpanzee as it would be for me. Why was Tommy in this cage? Was he a pet? Was he there for laboratory experiments? Uh, No, he's just in in a cage in a warehouse uh, in a place that sells, appeared to sell used trailers in a rural town in upstate New York. The closest category would be some kind of a pet. And we decided that that we had a moral obligation to try to identify all of the chimpanzees in New York and that we intended to file to seek writs of habeas corpus on behalf of all of them virtually simultaneously. So legally, people can hold chimpanzees captive uh, in New York, maybe in other places in the United States, but, but these animals have some rights. They can't be beaten. They can't be deprived of food. They do have some basic rights. No, I don't think they have any rights at all. Uh, There are some protections in that New York has an anti-cruelty statute. Uh, You basically can't be unnecessarily cruel to an animal. They don't specifically single out chimpanzees. And that's pretty much it. Uh, Tommy and every other non-human animal in in the state of New York, in fact, throughout the United States, in fact, probably throughout the world, are considered to be legal things and that they don't have the capacity for any legal rights at all. And the main purpose of our um, habeas corpus suits is to establish that Tommy and the other chimpanzees uh, should no longer be legal things, but should be at least legal persons for the purpose of a writ of habeas corpus, a common law writ of habeas corpus. You divide the world into two groups. People have rights, and if you are a person, you have rights, at least we hope. And the other category are things, and you could be a chimpanzee, or you could be a tree, or you could be a kumquat or whatever it is, and you don't have legal rights. Yes, that was actually a division that the Romans made more than 2,000 years ago that remains true. There are really three you know, major divisions of law, which is persons, things, and actions. And uh, if you are an entity, a solid entity, you are either a thing uh, without the uh, capacity for any rights or you're a person with the capacity for one or more rights. At one time, not all human beings were even persons. We know that in, in the United States, we had, we had slaves until 1865. These are human beings uh, who were legal things and not legal persons. In the year 2014, uh, every human being uh, is a legal person and every non-human being is a legal thing. And we think that is an arbitrary line. We, We argue that a creature like Tommy, who is extraordinarily cognitively complex, who is autonomous, who can self-determine his life, uh, that he should be a legal person with at least the fundamental right to bodily liberty that is protected by a common law writ of habeas corpus. To be clear, you distinguish between being a person and having personhood. And what you want is that Tommy and the other chimps have personhood status. Yes, they they would then be a legal person. A legal person um, is not synonymous with being a human being. 
a person is really something that the legal system has said is going to count. It's not going to be invisible to the civil law the way Tommy is. So let's take a look at what those legal rights might look like if Tommy and the other chimps are declared as persons under the law. They would be the first animals to receive those rights. And give us a picture of what that would mean legally. Sure, certainly. So in our case, we're, we're asking that um, Tommy be declared a person to the extent that he can seek a common law writ of habeas corpus and be discharged from his imprisonment, from being illegally detained. What, it, what uh, does that mean about the common law of habeas corpus? Well, habeas corpus means produce the body. Any human being right now who's being imprisoned against his will, can he or someone on his behalf can seek a writ of habeas corpus. The judge then orders the person who's holding the other one prisoner into court and bring the body with you, habeas corpus, produce the body, and give a legally sufficient reason for imprisoning that person. And that person would be Tommy. Now, I wonder if I could ask you then a few questions that are speculative, but just to sure. test this notion of, of legal rights for a chimpanzee. Would, would the chimpanzee be able to, for example, sue its owners? Uh, no. The only thing that a chimpanzee could do would be would be to have someone come in on his behalf and say that he's being wrongfully imprisoned. By us winning the suit, that would be the only right that we would win for a chimpanzee. And so he would have the right to be released? Yes, he would have the right to be released, exactly. Just like I would if somebody was holding me in a cage. Now, where would he be released, he or she be released to, though? Uh, there are... Seven or eight really fine chimpanzee sanctuaries in the United States. Uh, one of them is Save the Chimps in Fort Pierce, Florida. And uh, it is a place that is about as uh, natural a setting for a chimpanzee as can be found in the continent of North America. And uh, Tommy, if he went there, which we're hoping he would go there, uh, would live with 25 other chimpanzees on a three-acre island in the middle of a lake. Why would you not be able to release the chimpanzees to their natural habitat and into the wild? Uh, he could not be re released to uh, into the wild of Africa because the very small number of times it has been done, the uh, chimpanzee has died. And if you were able to secure these rights for the chimpanzees, this would be a milestone historically? Yes, it has never been done. One of the arguments that you and the other lawyers are using is that chimps and other apes should have legal rights. Is there cognitive abilities are so profound. And you've talked to leading primatologists about that, such as Sue Savage-Rumba and others. What do they say about the cognitive abilities of chimpanzees, and are they willing to say that in court, and does that matter? Uh, yes, they are. Along with our petition for a writ of habeas corpus, we filed almost 100 pages of affidavits from Sue Savage-Rumba and from eight other you know, well-respected ape researchers from around the world. Amongst them, they have hundreds of years of experience observing and working with chimpanzees, both in captivity and in the wild. We asked them to talk about the capacity of chimpanzees for autonomy and self-determination. And the reason we chose that is, one, is that the law of New York, as with the law of all the states, sees autonomy and self-determination as a value of the first rank. It is, in almost every state, seen as being more important than life itself. So being autonomous, being able to be to self-determine is an extraordinarily uh, powerful value. And we asked the researchers to tell us what they have seen in their decades and decades of research, uh, what cognitive abilities they have seen and understand chimpanzees to possess and why. For example, there's a, a Swedish scientist named Matthias Osvath who has shown that chimpanzees engage in what he calls mental time travel. His experiments show that chimpanzees clearly can remember the past, they can anticipate the future, they can think about how they might act in a future situation, and they can plan to do that. He also says that a being who has those kinds of characteristics, you know, will suffer the way we suffer if they're just sitting in a jail cell, as Tommy is. And do they also refer to the emotional life of chimps? They actually have fairly complex emotional lives, too. Oh, sure. They have, they have emotional lives. They talk about social lives. They have uh, material culture, social culture, symbolic culture. Uh, they understand numbers. They have fantastic short-term memories. 
And by the time you've read all these, you understand that you are dealing with a being who is not only extraordinarily complex in his or her own way, but is extraordinarily complex in a way that we understand because it resembles the way we're extraordinarily complex. Now, your organization is the Non-Human Rights Project. It's not the Non-Human Primate Rights Project. So you're fighting for the legal rights of all animals, but you're looking mainly at the family of great apes, elephants, and cetaceans, which are dolphins and whales. Why do these animals stand out? Uh, They do because, as far as we can understand, like the work with chimpanzees, Scientists have been studying elephants and cetaceans and other great apes for years, and they also have found that these beings are autonomous and self-determining beings. Well, I wonder what your opinion is then about zoos, because for those zoos that have an aim towards conservation, you could argue that they're helping to save species and it also allows the public to bond with animals and look them in the eye and and feel some attachment and uh, responsibility for the future. On the other hand, If a chimp or an elephant has legal rights, uh, maybe they should have complete freedom and freedom from zoos altogether. Uh, Chimpanzees, the other great apes and elephants, should not be in zoos. They should not be publicly exhibited any more than human beings should. Well, finally, Steve, legal battles always have big hurdles. What is the biggest hurdle in this one? I think the largest hurdle we have is the fact that most people, including judges, uh, tend to see the word person as being synonymous with human beings. So the first thing that we have to make it clear to them is that human beings are not synonymous with persons. They are simply a kind of person and that uh, there are certain non-human beings like chimpanzees who ought to be persons too. And so once they can get past that, we think we'll be well on our way. Steve Wise, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. It's been an honor. Stephen Wise is a legal scholar at the Non-Human Rights Project in New York. Wow, what an interesting case. Well, in this show, we heard that distinctions based on superficial clues, while that helped us to evolve down the evolutionary path to Homo sapiens, now we can peel back the veneers of life and we find we're not much different from some animals and nearly identical to one another. And we've also heard that that may have profound consequences to how we treat other animals in terms of whether or not we give them legal rights, and that is playing out in the courtroom, at least with regard to our closest living relatives, chimpanzees. Thanks to a production team that leads the pack if you're grouping by talent, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to What's the Difference? And if you'd like to compare this Big Picture Science episode to others, you can do so on our archive page on our website, bigpicturescience.org. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because that makes you a standout among the millennials, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and uh, do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Write us at bigpicturescience at seti.org. We endeavor to answer everyone.